Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Black Tech Green Money isn't just about telling the stories of successful black entrepreneurs. It's also about giving actionable and wealth-building strategies that help you protect the future of our communities. That's why we're pleased to be supported by State Farm Insurance. State Farm also believes that we must invest in our communities to achieve economic growth by sponsoring programs like the AXO, which rewards high school students for their academic achievements. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. It is an insider look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on hot topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Teledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I was like, ain't everybody at this point? <laughs> I was like, that man losing bags quick. For no damn reason. <laughs> For no reason. Just self-inflicted, man. I'm self-inflicted. There's a fresh water right there for you. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's really been the year of self-sabotage. <laughs> I'm serious, like for You're, real. Mm-hmm. I think he's the leader in the clubhouse, though. He was for self sabotage. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you look it up in the dictionary, oh, it's no, like no, his no, face. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Here we go, y'all. Morning, everybody. It's DJ NV Angela Yee, Charlamagne the guy. We are the Breakfast Club. We got a special guest in the building. Yes, Jamel Hill. <laughs> She's got a new book out. Her uphill. Her mm-hmm. memoir. That's right. Great picture, by the way. Thank you. How many of these did you have to pick through before you landed on this one? You know what? Um, and this is going to sound far more salacious than I actually mean it, but that was from a Playboy shoot I did. What? Yeah, so... How did you do Playboy? Yeah, because Playboy, um, read it for the articles. It's very good writing. <laughs> read for the articles. It's very good writing in Playboy, everybody. Hold on, let me see what pictures on the back. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they they did a feature on me um, at some point. I think it was earlier this year. And so the photo shoot, uh, the photographer, I think, believe his name is Eric Carter. He's based out of L.A. He took some phenomenal photos. So, wow. Uh, because during COVID, um, you know, we couldn't really work out how to, you know, get new photos taken. So I was like, I love these from the Playboy shoot. 
Did no, you play you a joke on the husband and be like, hey, I'm doing a shoot with Playboy? Oh, what? I totally did. Like, yeah. I was just like, I'm going to be in Playboy. He was like, what? <laughs> I think they don't do new pictures anymore. No, right? I don't think so. Yeah. I think it's like a more of a... You know, content oriented. They've always had good articles in Playboy. I'm serious. Listen, Alex Haley wrote for Playboy. Okay, so Mm. uh, like, I don't think anybody ever went to Playboy for the articles. (laughs) (laughs) You you telling on yourself right now, but that's okay. (laughs) I love the title of the book too. uh, Uphill. I mean, it's a play on your last name, of course, but I mean, it actually isn't. It's not. It's not. (laughs) It's not. (laughs) And it it was not my title idea. This was not the original title that I wanted. What was the original title? What up, though? (laughs) <laughs> 313 that came in third okay. uh, no the original title I wanted was Broken Curses because I talk a lot about my family history yep. family trauma and all of that and my mother and I'm sure you know you guys have heard this before from elders or from your parents or uncles or whatever but the fact that there are generational curses and my mother that's used right. to talk about mm-hmm. you know breaking those in our family and so that's why I wanted to name it Broken Curses but my publisher they they thought it was a little too negative, that it wasn't uplifting enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, my book editor, Shannon, shout out to you, Shannon, she came up with that title, Uphill. Okay. Mm. And I, I said to you, the chosen one, <laughs> when we first said it, because honestly, you talk about your mom and the things that she's been through and your whole family, and it's a lot. And so how does she feel about, you know, these stories being told? So I, I talked to my mother but we had numerous conversations about what was going to be in this book. And she knew what I was doing and the journey that I was on in writing it and knew that I wanted to write it transparently. But uh, honestly, Angela, that was probably the most difficult part because I was I was I was in the unfortunate position of asking my mother about the worst moments of her life. Yeah. Mm. And I tried to save those conversations for last, mm-hmm. if you will, so that we could talk about maybe happier things and fun memories just to um, kind of not come from a traumatic you know, perspective. And so uh, it was tough. I mean, my mother told me some stories I did not even know. Right. You know, the story that I tell in the book about Don't her. Don't give too much away. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, you know, I guess it's an example of a story. But the story I tell in the book. Uh, about how one of her low points during her addiction was being, you know, caught in this drug house mm-hmm. and having to hide out from drug dealers in that house on the floor, on a rat infested floor. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that story mm-hmm. until she told me because that happened when I was in college. I mm-hmm. was so scared with that part. Yeah. She was underneath those dirty clothes, mm-hmm. rats running around. Yep. And she I had was to stay still. To God, and I thought they was going to steal her car while she was inside. Uh, I, well, her, her car, as I tell, did eventually get stolen. You know, um, and uh, it, it was nothing she could do about it, but it was where she was at the time that it was stolen and what she was doing. How did you feel having those conversations with your mom? Because that had to be emotional. I was reading some of that stuff that she went through and I was like in tears. Um, it was it was difficult. And but I think for her, it was cathartic because mm-hmm. these are traumatic incidents that you know, during the time after she was, um, you know, sexually abused and as I tell in the book, she was uh, the victim of a, a violent rape. You know, people weren't going to therapy then. Like that wasn't suggested. And as you know, Charlemagne, from your work in mental health in our community, that was something we didn't do. Mm-hmm. So imagine going through all of that with no therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's why, as I discuss in the book, she was going through very severe PTSD mm-hmm. and did not know it because that wasn't a term then that we even were familiar with. And so, um, yeah, those were those were difficult conversations. But I think um, at the end of them, it was really healing for both of us, you know, to be honest. Like, I, I certainly knew about 
the trauma she experienced. But her going into detail, uh, it gives me a better and more enriched perspective about who she is. Yeah, I feel like it allowed I feel like it allowed you to give her more grace. Yeah, and and listen, people have been asking me about what I want people to take away from this book. It's a few things, but one of the most important things Mm -hmm. is that I want I want people to know you should talk to your people while they're here, right? Like your mothers, your aunties, your father, whoever in your family, find out about them because usually, like especially your relatives and especially your parents, they lived a whole life. That's right. Before you even got here. That's right. Um, And writing this book, it really made me miss my grandmother who died in in 2010 because I realized I didn't ask her nearly as much about her life as I should have. You know, even I know it's hard sometimes for parents and grandparents to share, you know, um, traumatic moments or their failures or disappointments, but it helps you see them as full people. And maybe that does allow you to give them more grace with some of the decisions they made and even in some respects to how they've treated you. Mm. I was going to ask, did you understand more after talking to your mom and and writing this book? Because you know, even for myself, I didn't really understand until I had kids. Mm. And then when I had kids and I'm living my own life, I'm like, that's why my dad did that. That's why my mom acted that way. But, you know, at during the time, I don't want to say I hated them, but you hated what they were doing. Right. But now it's like, damn, I understand. So did you understand more and were able to? I, I'm, you know what I understood more is why even in present day she lives with so much regret. We had an interesting conversation recently about that because I forgave my mother for this a long time ago. I've, I've let this go because I think as a kid, you know, it was it was different because her trauma was something I had to navigate around. So it felt like my childhood was being stolen from me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you carry a, a, some resentment for that. And so I let that go. I forgave her encouraged her as she was turning her life around you know my mother i mean she's got her masters now you know she got her bachelor masters Mm -hmm. you know she out educated me Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i'm very very proud that she did that and she went back to school in her 50s okay and so um you know this has really been a remarkable turnaround for her but yeah i mean you know once i let all of that stuff you know go i think um i was good with it but she i think she still struggles to forgive herself because Mm. She feels like she missed so much. and But the thing is, and it's something I, I wrote in the book, is that my mother was there for everything. Right. Like, even though, you know, she had a, a severe addiction, I, I didn't have one of those stories where my mom was missing for days, like, mm-hmm. or didn't feed me, or the lights was cut off. And or, she was very protective of you correct, still, no matter what. No matter what. Mm-hmm. So, like, I didn't, that wasn't my story necessarily, because I know some people who are the, ch- the child of addicts, they do have that story. Mm-hmm. But... She was there, but she wasn't always present. Gotcha. You know what I mean? And so I think because she was trying to, um, you know, figure out how to come out of all the darkness she was in, I had to figure out ways to navigate around her abuse, her drug abuse. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't know what mood you're going to be in. I don't know what mm-hmm. person I'm getting today. Mm-hmm. I don't know when I come home what dynamic I'm going to find. And so that for me was where the resentment was coming from. Is feeling like, man, I got to do all this you know, I'm a, I'm trying to be a kid, and mm-hmm. it's all this seriousness and darkness kind of around us. And so um, I, I think once I really uh, talked to her about it, and we've talked throughout the years, but it, it definitely helped me um, to understand a lot of the decisions she made. Mm-hmm. Watching uh, what she went through, did it, like, scare you away from drugs and alcohol? 
Oh, I mean, you know, uh, like I've never, ever tried hard drugs in my life. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who's done any of that. I mean, that I know of. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not on that scene. I'm not about that. I mean, I smoked a little weed like here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, May have taken an edible or two. Like, (laughs) like that's about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do like tequila, but knowing Mm -hmm. the history of addiction in my family has definitely made me more cognizant of some things. Mm -hmm. Did your mom forgive her mother? Did she have that opportunity to have those conversations? So they didn't they didn't get to the best place. They were there was always unconditional love. My mother loved my grandmother fiercely. But when my grandmother made the decision not to believe her about the abuse my mother suffered at the hands of her brother, it was a fracture in their relationship that never healed. Mm. And um unfortunately even when my grandmother died, like um, my mother was her caretaker, you know, like she, regardless of whatever state their relationship was in, in the moment, my mother was never going to abandon and stop loving my grandmother. And my grandmother definitely loved her, but she herself was somebody who, um, you know, we, we used to have conversations about this. Like she used to tell me like she didn't really want kids and she felt she was a very smart woman um, you know, and she was really she really wanted a career, like the kind of career I had, not necessarily a journalist, but she wanted a career. She wanted to travel the world, all these things. And she was born in 1925. And so education for black women was not a thing in terms of people thinking that they should be educated or that there was value in that. As you know, during those times, I mean, everything that a woman wanted to get financially or any upward mobility came through marriage. Mm-hmm. And so she was married three times. And, you know, she she had her uh, three kids, but she was just in many ways trapped in a life she didn't feel like she chose. And um, I think because of that, she wasn't the best parent to um, my mother and, and to, um, you know, my uncle that she she could have been. She struggled a lot. They got evicted a lot. My grandmother was a functional alcoholic like they they had some they had some trauma, some real issues. And so um she was a great grandmother to me and my mother would, would still call her a great mother despite all the all the you know troubles that they went through but i just think that um my mother never got the grandparent i got right you know and i was asking did, is there anything that you decided not to put in the book that she was like you know what, let's leave this out or i'm gonna take this out or other family members are not gonna like this i know y'all like to hear the inside y'all know i know people keep it real over here and the tea there was one thing I cannot tell y'all what it was. Me and my mother got into an enormous argument about this. Mm-hmm. And the the thing is, is that she, it was the only thing in the book she was, because she got an early copy, like an advanced mm-hmm. reader copy, where you could still edit and change things. And she was hot about it. And um, <laughs> we had it out. And But the funny thing was, after our argument, she told you know some of her friends about it. And they told her she was tripping. And I had a time to think about it, reflect on it. I talked to uh, my husband about it. And, you know, the thing when you write a memoir, you're writing about people who really exist. And so you have to be careful, truthful, but careful. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So that's why when I talk about the abortion I had, I used I did not use the person's real name because I don't know if they've told that story. Mm -hmm. I don't know if his people know or what state that's in and I didn't want to take away that opportunity from him to tell his story his own way so with my mother I had to think about the fact that what is this relationship going to look like after this book Mm -hmm. and while I didn't anticipate my mother would stop talking to me or that but it could 
be a wedge issue. And this is in print. You know what I'm right. saying? Yeah, it's forever. It's forever, yeah. right? So I had to really think about, do I really want to do this? I can't imagine what it could be because there is so much. That I'll tell y'all off here. I'll tell y'all off. Even look, your journal, you discussed that part. Yeah, oh, Jesus. Man, and for parents, let me ask the guys in the room because y'all have kids. Would you read your daughter's journal if you saw it laying around? I would tell my wife to read it. You would? Really? Because you yeah. don't want to read it? Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to read it, but I do think, no, I probably would read it, only because like there's, I just feel like there's certain things <laughs> that we should know as as parents. You know what I mean? I would definitely read it. I definitely you would, would definitely read it. Read it? And, and, and I, I would. Mm-hmm. I, the only reason I say yes because I've gone through the phone. Oh, you know what I mean. And when but I went that's through, not the same though. Yes, it is. Now, I don't nowadays, think the phone knows that your deepest exactly. But this is thoughts, the thing, right? They could not be true things. It could be just you. It could venting. be you it's just like, like venting. It's like exactly. eavesdropping on a therapy. But it could be session. something where you know something's bothering you that you don't talk about, that's and, you're, right. and you're thinking about committing suicide or hurting yourself or hurting somebody. So if I can stop that, and maybe you hate me, but I, hopefully you love me later right. on because I was able to stop that. Now, if it's something else, I mind my business and act like I didn't read it. But if it's something where you could have. You know, hurt yourself, hurt yeah. somebody else, hurt a classmate. Well, how do you look at it, Jamil? Obviously, I disagree, <laughs> and I got my ass whooped because of it. Okay, <laughs> and every and that was the thing is that because of all the, you know, tumultuousness mm-hmm. in our life, that I needed some place to vent. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't vent to my grandmother because my grandmother then that causes friction between her and my mother. Mm-hmm. I was too embarrassed to vent to my friends. And let them in on the issues. Not like I could pick a teacher, because that's a double ass whooping coming, right? Well, you didn't have therapy back then. Didn't have therapy. Yeah. So my journal was literally that. And so there is I think that might be that might be that's a top three frightening moment of my life. When you come home and your mother is sitting there with, with your open. journal open. <laughs> reading it. Reading it. Is what you think of me? This exactly. <laughs> I mean, that woman I was like so, I was like, you tried to kill me, my straight up. When she read the advanced copy of the book, did it bring you back to that moment? <laughs> oh, we oh, it did, like it was triggering writing it. I was right, just right, like, right. okay, because that's that's the worst ass whooping she ever gave me in my life. <laughs> it, like there's nothing that comes That was close. abuse. That was abuse. <laughs> it was. That was abuse. And then she, you know, years later, she was like, I you know you didn't deserve them whoopings. Well, can you go back in time and unwhoop me? <laughs> can you do this? But you know it was. But she, it was, it was. That was one of our actually most fun conversations because <laughs> there were details of that that I did not remember, mm-hmm. and I was like, that don't really sound like me because she told me that. Um, well, one, she was sitting there with my journal, and then she was like, "Let's talk about this in the basement." I was like, "Oh shit, I'm never coming back like this." <laughs> in this the basement, in the basement, and she said, "That's when I told her that I wanted to go live with my father." I was like, "What would possess me to say that?" Right. Yeah, that's because like, you was about to get you right. Get out the house. And that's why she bagged up all my shit, put and it took in a, you there, put, and took me right to his job and was like, "She's all yours now." And I was like, "This." was a grave mistake on my wow. part. This man. Yeah. And, but, I, you know, I was able to keep a journal <laughs> later as a, an, a, an adult. And I actually had an ex who read my journal, too. And, woo. You need better hiding spots. That's what you I need. I mean, <laughs> people need to not be nosy. How about right? that? <laughs> but I guess it's, it's your child. I understand what they said as far as... But like, your man? Oh, no, hell not your no. Man. Definitely not. <laughs> hell you know no. what, man? And what your book um, sparked a conversation that I had recently. Somebody told me, a man, and I was thinking about survival and like for women, and I saw like with your mom's stories of just who she was with was 
sometimes just for survival. Like right. who can financially Correct. provide and take care of things. Somebody said to me the other day, man, I wish I had money and could handle my business so I could date who I want to date. <laughs> and I thought about Damn that man. because, Damn. you know, Damn. you're. but there's people who end up in situations where it's like, this is a good provider. I have a family. I have children. And therefore, this is a smart decision for me to be with this person. And that's something your mom actually had to do also. Yeah, I mean, and she's very practical. Mm -hmm. And so to her, those were the qualifications she was looking for in being with somebody, um, especially at a certain stage in life. Like uh, her first marriage, my first stepfather, as I love to say to my mother, (laughs) just to mess with her, like (laughs) stepfather number one. Um, But uh, no, she she did that one for love, Mm -hmm. right? That was like purely for love. And but I think after that and certainly with some of the circumstances in our life, there was a practicality that she thought, you know, it didn't make sense to her um, to be with a man who could not provide for you financially. I mean, she's very old school in that way. And, you know, even as my profile expanded and, you know, she would give me dating advice like I understand that you know your salary is published whether true or not and so she was one of her biggest concerns is that some man would want to be with me just because you know of of my money and um you know I I told her like we have a totally different kind of viewpoint of those things I was like you know when I get married I want to I want to do it for love right that's not to say that financial considerations are not a part of this Mm -hmm. you know you, you do have to have some common sense with it but that can't be the provision can't be the basis necessarily of mm-hmm. our marriage, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. it's more than just financial things that mm-hmm. you need from a person. And, um, you know, there's emotional security that you need from that person as well. Trust, nurturing, commitment, like all those other things that really don't have anything, you know, to do with money. That's why I'm always like I always laugh because people um, this is obviously before I got married. They're always surprised. They were always surprised that I wasn't, you know, dating like some athlete or somebody else. I was like, that has never been <laughs> That's never been my style. Well, that's my... the point is that you are financially able to be in love because for some right. women, they're like, I got to be practical. Yeah, no. And to it, get to a space financially where you're like, I can do what I want. I, it, but it's funny, though, because I wish, you know, for my mother that like she was a little less practical and was more, you know, th- that's not to say that she was incapable of, of, of the loving aspect of a relationship. But it is to say that I think... Um, you know, because of so much was robbed from her, right. you know, from a physical standpoint, I do think it was much harder for her to really trust any man. Mm-hmm. And so to her, the provision part, like, OK, this is a tangible that I can see that I can rely on. That's why I think that had such a high importance for her. How, how important, um, cause I don't think we talk about this enough, how important is picking the right partner, the right mate? How important is that into breaking generational Curses. Oh, I think it's a huge part of it. I mean, listen, between my mother, my grandmother, and my great aunt, who also is no longer no longer living, they were married eight times. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> eight times. Wow. And, you know, there were certainly some successful marriages in my family. I did not see a lot of them mm-hmm. growing up because even the people that were together, you know, it was like, okay, come on. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it was it, it was definitely some turbulence that was there. And for a long time, I did not want to get married. And that was because seeing how those relationships um, created some brokenness in them. And I was like, I don't want any part of that. If that's what that's supposed to look like, I'm good. Mm. And 
that's why I'm so thankful that I got married when I did, like when I was into my 40s already, um, because by that time, having some lived experience, being at a, per- a point where I didn't need to get married, certainly. Um, the only way I was going to get married if I truly wanted to be with that person. And so when I met my husband in, in 2014, um, you know, I, I wasn't looking. What did you <laughs> mean? Uh, we met at homecoming at, at Michigan State. You know, I know that, uh, of course, now we're in like HBCU homecoming season, season right. right now. And it's like, <laughs> look, at PWIs, the black people do our thing too, all right? You know, I'm not saying it's as lit as Hampton. I'm not saying that, Envy, all right? I get it. It is a little different, all right? But we, we, get, we do all right. And so I was there in Michigan State um, as the Grand Marshal of the Homecoming Parade. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Black Alumni Tailgate, okay, <laughs> okay? MSU Black Alumni, MSU BA, shout out. Um, I was there and I was actually talking to a former student of mine because when I worked in Detroit at the at the Free Press, I co-taught a sports writing class at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. And this he was one of the students that was in my class. And so I'm talking to him and I see this like fine dude like kind of roll up. I was like, OK, <laughs> I was like, I don't know what's happening there, but I'm liking the energy. And we were just like flirting and going back and forth. But we never exchanged numbers. Because, uh, you know, the, the student I was talking to knew my husband. They were good friends. And later on that night at the black alumni uh, party that they, they have uh, during homecoming weekend, uh, DJ by MC Light. <laughs> like, I'll never forget. I, I saw I saw him at the party and I was like, what are the odds that you see the fine guy that you've never seen before? And I've been coming to homecoming for a couple of years that you see him again. Must be a sign. black party? Yeah. Probably high. Well, not, look, I know, but I have been going to homecoming for the last couple of years, mm-hmm. going to all the black events. I'd never seen him. Oh, okay, okay. Right? And once we got to talking, I mean, like he, at my my home church growing up is right in his neighborhood. All my people lived in the, uh, the side of Detroit that he lived on, and it was a miracle we have never run into each other. Wow. And even though he went to Michigan State, he w- he's five years younger than me. So we weren't there at the same time, but gotcha. we had a lot of, like, connections. So... Uh, he came over to talk to me. Uh, he got my number okay. and he called me the next day, which a lot of dudes don't do anymore. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like calling you right away. Not or a any- text, but a phone call. A phone call. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing that was impressive. <laughs> also impressive. I actually answered it. <laughs> wow. Right. I was like, hello, you know. And so. Um, so, yeah. The, and the rest was kind of history, as they say. And uh, we had our first date a couple weeks later. It just so happened. I was going to um, Orange County uh, in, in California for a work conference for for ESPN. And then he his company happens to be headquartered in Orange County and he was going to be there wow. for business. He was going to be there regardless. Even <laughs> there, God did. <laughs> wow. no, I got a meeting out there. It just so happens. It's just a what? You right. going there too? No, we were just talking on the phone and he was like, wait a minute, I'm going to be there too. And so uh, he he came over to my hotel and um, we hung out, had some drinks, and, uh, you know, he, he uh, stayed overnight. Nothing happened. Let me just say this, because mm-hmm. I see where y'all mind is going. No. Nothing happened. And I thought, like, when he... <laughs> y'all didn't even kiss? Wait, watch. When you said nothing happened, you told him... I mean, like, did y'all kiss? I mean, well, yeah, matter, you, yeah, you said nothing happened. <laughs> well, you're right. Let me, let, me cl- <laughs> let, let, me, let me clarify. No sex happened, okay? okay? Right. All right? And, yeah, we did kiss, mm-hmm. but, you know, we just slept and uh the next day i thought man as soon as daylight hit this dude gonna be out of here mm-hmm. 
And but he wasn't. He was he like never left since. <laughs> he was like, let's he's go to breakfast. I find it hilarious that he's out there recording this like you haven't heard this story a million times. Like you haven't read the book. Like you haven't heard the audible. Like he's, <laughs> he's smiling. He's like, he never gets old. See? I know, right? I think I went to breakfast. Yeah. I think he just wanna see about if I if I tell some various you know, some different version than what he tells, you know. Or whatever. He he puts a little more sauce on when we first met than I do. But I, that is the truthful version. Version of what happened. <laughs> now you talk about in the book about your experiences uh, growing up in Detroit, but what I what I want to know is how hard is it to let go of the Detroit in you when you're in these <laughs> corporate environments? Uh, how much Detroit do you need? <laughs> how many times do you go, what up, doe? <laughs> well, of course, when I see somebody from Detroit, you know, that's, uh, as you know, Jalen Rose worked at ESPN. We see each yeah, other. Yeah. We like, what up, doe, right? Okay. Um, you know what? The Detroit in me will never leave. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Right. That doesn't mean that you're in meetings and corporate environments having to cuss people out or do anything like that. But, you know, you let people know you have a boundary and that you expect to be respected. And I think the parts of, of Detroit that are in me are parts that are that have just done wondrous things for my life. You know, Detroit, Angela knows this, Detroit is is a tough city. It's a resilient city. It's also a city where you know we take a lot of pride in being from there. Don't nobody put on for Detroit, for Detroit like people yeah, from that's Detroit. Your own lingo. We got our yes, exactly. <laughs> the way it, we got our dance, little boss up action, <laughs> like we all of that. Yeah, that's that's a part of who we are, and so that's why in in my social media bio, it, I, I say that you know I was raised in Detroit, grew up in Michigan State. Like Detroit is going to always run. Hot and heavy through my blood. And also a little flossy all the time. <laughs> yeah. That aspect of The fact that we wear meat coats to the movies, like, come on, nah, you'll never take the Detroit and out the of the education me. that you got there, I think, was incredible. Just to hear, because I feel like that shaped a lot of who you are today. Just being from there, but also the school that you went to. And then the mentors, not, or people that actually encouraged you to try different things. Because a lot of kids don't have that. Yeah, I mean, listen, there were so many pivotal points in my life where just a seed planted by somebody, just a word that got me to the next step that I was supposed to get to that encouraged me to kind of keep going. And, you know, in Detroit, I was a, I was largely, with the exception of two or three years, a public high school, uh, a public uh, education student. You know, I went to public elementary school. I went to a public middle school, you know, Bobian Middle School, went to Mumford. That's why I graduated from high school. And it's another reason why public education is very important to me. I was lucky because Detroit gave me a firm sense of my identity. You know, it was a city, I think now it might currently be the blackest city in America because it's what, 80, 85% black. When I was growing up, it was over a million people lived in Detroit. It was like 90% black. Mm -hmm. You know, you didn't have to have first Fridays in Detroit. It was called going to the grocery store. You saw black people <laughs> everywhere. You know, you went. Downtown a little different. You though. know, <laughs> yeah, now it is. Yeah. But back then it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was still ours, if you know what I mean. And, so having black teachers, having black male teachers throughout um, my entire, you know, schooling, like those were important identity uh, moments. You know, I didn't have to go out of my way to learn about black history. My my teachers just taught it. It was just a part of the curriculum. You know, I took African-American history classes at Mumford. Right. So it was just like that was nothing new. And so to go from that environment and then to go to Michigan State, you know, 40,000 students, 80% of them white, probably more than that. It was like quite a culture shock <laughs> for me. Mm -hmm. But I was so glad to have had that experience of growing up in Detroit because 
that allowed me to always have pride in my identity and um, you know, to kind of carry that with me wherever I went. You know, that's why I laugh, and I'm sure Envy, you probably get this, when people say going to a HBCU is not the real world. I was like, no, you need to be rooted in who you are because mm-hmm. whatever environment you step into, you cannot let it change who you are or let them tell you who you are. Well, Envy's Dominican, so... It, <laughs> and even going to Michigan State, you weren't even fathoming that you could have white roommates. No, I mean, it was it was wild because... Uh, but it was some of the racial conversations we used to have them. Good God. Thank God. Nobody had a phone because they would be like, what? <laughs> but, you know, my, my sweet mates at the time, they were they were from Sterling Heights, uh, Michigan. And we used to call it growing up Sterling Whites. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it was because <laughs> it was it was that white. Right. And, um, you know, they didn't even they didn't they had no idea who Malcolm X was. Wow. They they were like, we we get Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, we get a day off for that? They had no idea. Like, they were like, nah, I, th- I think we were in school. I was like, that can't be the case. It's a national mm-hmm. holiday. They they just didn't know. They didn't have any exposure to black people outside of listening to the chronic. Like, they really didn't. Wow. Like, they didn't know anything. And so, um, but in fairness, I didn't know a whole lot about white people either. Uh, <laughs> so, right. other, you know, obviously I knew way more history about white people than they knew about you know black people but in terms of just being around white people um i didn't have that much experience with that so it was great and we're still friends to this day that Mm -hmm. we were able to um you know learn from each other but you know there was some michigan state like i mean uh, that was a place where you know i really came into my own and, and grew up but in terms of you know having just real up close experiences with racism that all you know a lot of that started and happened there can we talk about uh you know, you talk about how what your mother taught you about black conservatives. <laughs> about my my article in the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my mother is uh, she is a deep sense of her faith. Um, she's a Christian and uh, or a believer, you know, as, as she likes to put it. And because of her religious background or because of her faith, I won't use the term religion. Um you know, she is certain conservative principles that she has. Now, some of these principles are outside of faith because, you know, the one thing that's hilarious to me about, you know, Republicans is that they want to always label black people liberal. And y'all know and having conversations, especially with some elders, the black people, like they conservative as hell. Or from the South. Exactly. Especially those from from the South. And so... The uh, black people don't have a problem with conservatives. We got a problem with racism. That's right. That's those are totally you know different things. And so my mother, you know, she's old school, and especially you know with her um, being a believer, she does not believe in abortion. And there's other ideals that she has uh, that we clash on because clearly that's not where I'm coming from. And but I think her her being that way has really given me insight about conservatives to is particularly those that tie it to their Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And so that's informed a lot of my opinions and even how I write about those issues when I'm attacking conservatives usually. <laughs> this, this this era, this 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 Trump conservative is totally different than the ones from back in the day, I think. They oh it's definitely different, but you know, as, as I write about in the book, there were things about Trump that appealed to my mother. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I know that seems strange to say about you know, a 60-something-year-old black woman from Detroit. But she she liked the macho shit. I mean, she liked the tough talk and the whole generation is soft. Like, that fed right into a lot of the things that she believes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. And um, 
and she also watched him on The Apprentice too. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. yeah, but yeah, I mean, so I, I think while these Trump conservatives are markedly different, markedly more dangerous, um, there are some core principles they have that, frankly, Republicans have always had. Right. Mm. They he didn't invent a lot of the things that he's done. He perfected some of them, mm-hmm. but. You know, when you look back at Ronald Reagan's presidency, you see a lot oh, of similarities. Yeah, he evokes a lot of those talking points. He t- he totally does. I'm going to touch on a few things without telling everything, but chapter eight, free mm-hmm. press don't raise no punks. <laughs> Expound on that a little bit. So that um, title came from a very fun night that I had uh, when I was covering Michigan State basketball. They had just beaten Kentucky in the Elite Eight and were on their way to their first Final Four since Magic took them in 79. So this is back in 1999. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, Michigan State, because they were good, they had a lot of media coverage, a lot of Detroit media outlets and Michigan media outlets um, that were following them. And so after the game, you know, we know we headed to the Final Four, so we all went out to just um, hang out, um, get some drinks. And somehow we just started doing tequila shot after tequila shot after tequila shot. And I might have been four or five in, easy, and... Somebody was like, are we doing one more round? And most people tapped out. I was like, I ain't tapping out. Free press don't raise no punks. And they never <laughs> let me forget that. So my, so for years when I was on the beat, every time I ran into another reporter who was there that night, they'd be like, free press don't raise no punks. I was like, I can't stand y'all. So that is where that title came from. Yeah, it's interesting that you didn't realize your voice, how it could be so polarizing for certain people, right? To write an article and then to get responses where people are even threatening you. Yeah. And such a, at such a young age, too. No, I mean, that started, like, I started getting hate mail back at Michigan State. I mean, the first time I was uh, called a nigger was at Michigan State, mm-hmm. right? And unfortunately, because I did have that experience there, had it at the Free Press, every place I worked, Orlando, Raleigh, I was called a racial slur. Every place. I was either told to, um, you know, I was either called a racial slur, told to go back to Africa or go right for Cosmo. It was going to be one of those three. Mm-hmm. And so... Why Cosmo? Woman's, Woman's Magazine. Magazine. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, huh? I was like, yeah, You wouldn't even think about the gender. You're like, that's white. No, so every, every time I, I had been told that, and so by the time it started happening at ESPN, and especially after um, what I said about Donald Trump, I was... I had already been through it, mm-hmm. so it wasn't nearly effective. The problem is with the Trump thing, like, that took it to a whole new level. You know, I had yeah. certainly faced hate before my career and even gotten a couple death threats. That was different, you know. And when I was at ESPN and that happened, it was just like um, the mobs of mail. Like, you know, you real racist when you take the time out to write somebody a letter mm-hmm. calling them a nigger. Among many other things, I was like, "Damn, that took you had to put a stamp on this." Yeah, Going to the post, like, a, right? I can see if you fire up a tweet or a Facebook message, like that's fast. That's like, old school, that's you know what I'm saying? School. That's that old school racism. Mm-hmm. Man. Like, they ain't got no Wi-Fi in them back. <laughs> they like they took time out of their day to make sure they got I feel this. Like you, thing off. you had to hold back talking about everything at ESPN too. What in the book? Yeah. Um. You know what? There was. I don't think I held back, but I think. There are parts of that story that, you know, frankly, didn't really go with the whole narrative of what is a whole lot of incidents I could have certainly right. talked about. But it's like it just didn't make sense in terms of the storytelling rhythm I wanted to go. Plus, you know, ESPN was a chapter in my life. It wasn't my whole life. Right. And I realized that a lot of people 
may buy this memoir because they looking for the ESPN dirt and gossip. I was honest. I'm sure there are some people at ESPN that probably don't like some of the things that I put in there. Uh, but it is what it is. You were very honest. You said you were embarrassed sitting there while they were. <laughs> he was reading verbatim what you said. Oh, man. Uh, talking about the former president yeah. of ESPN, John Skipper, who is still a friend of mine. You know, okay. we went through a, a rough period after the uh, Donald Trump incident. And, you know, as I write about the most disappointing part about all of that, it wasn't what the president said. It wasn't the reaction. It wasn't the death threats. The most disappointing part of that was that when he called me out, when the White House said that I should be fired, ESPN did not have my back. Mm -hmm. That was it. Because there's a code in journalism, for sure. Mm -hmm. And every newspaper I ever worked for, I fully believe that if that happened while I was at that paper, they would have put out a statement right away saying, "Uh uh-uh. Now, you may not like what she said, but she one of us. Because that's the whole, Mm -hmm. that's the whole tenet of a free press, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, you're supposed to be protected from government you know it's persecution Mm -hmm. and there's so many examples in the history of journalism of where newspapers and outlets have done exactly that like when city hall comes after your reporter it's understood you got your reporters back Mm -hmm. and when espn didn't do that and just let me twist and let me fry i was i was mad i was disappointed honestly i was hurt i had been there 11 years at that point i'm like we got to be better than this Mm -hmm. and one of the, you know, one of the healing aspects of my relationship with Skipper, like when we met the day before I was coming off suspension and, and we went to have breakfast, he apologized to me then and said he was sorry. He said if there was one regret he had, it was that he should have said something after uh, Trump or uh, former press secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said something about me. Did he tell you the truth, too, about how, you know, a lot of those network execs were afraid that Trump wouldn't um, clear the Fox Disney merger? No, he actually didn't. Do it. Oh, okay. He didn't tell me that. Is that like uh, the equivalent of Bill Cosby was buying NBC? Or? No, that, no that, was, that, that was actually true. Like people yeah. were afraid that he wasn't going to approve the the merger between Fox Disney. I forgot who else it was. Well, I, I think a part of it, um, you know, at that point, if y'all remember in, in 2017 when, you know, those tweets happened and I got in the crosshairs of the president, ESPN was at a very interesting juncture. Mm-hmm. Like they were being called too political. Mm-hmm. Too, too left liberal leaning mm-hmm. and, you know, which I thought in many ways was just coded racism because mm-hmm. suddenly you see a new emergence of faces at ESPN. You know, you had Stephen A. Smith becoming the face of the network. You had me. You had Michael Smith. You had Bomani Jones. Um, all these uh, Sarah Spain, Kate Fagan, like all these different new diverse voices that were that had major platforms, you know, Dan Lebitard. So suddenly you see a mix up in terms of what the talent looks like at ESPN, and then all of a sudden they're too political and too liberal. You know, because people often, white America, just our presence to them is political. Our presence to them is liberal. We're reminding them of something just by sitting here. We could say nothing political at all, Mm -hmm. and they would swear we were political. So that's why I used to get so pissed when Mike and I were doing SportsCenter and they used to call our show political. We never talked about politics. They acted like when they turned to Sports Center, we were breaking down immigration reform. Mm-hmm. That like never happened. And we got sick of talking about Colin Kaepernick, not because his story was important, but we had producers that every time a quarterback was signed would come running us like, Y'all wanna talk about Colin Kaepernick? I was like, No. Mm-hmm. We don't like we said what we said. Mm-hmm. Like it's already mm-hmm. been established that the NFL is not going to let him back into playing football. And so people were trying to create a, a narrative around our show just because we were our black ass selves on TV. And that was, 
you know, really a difficult period to go through as you're trying to get a new show off the ground, trying to find your footing. And all of this noise and narrative is around the show about it not being too political and Mike and I are racist and they started calling us woke center. Like that was some, that was some, that was some bullshit. Like it really was. I find it hilarious that ESPN had to turn right back around though. And they had, they couldn't run from the fact that there was an intersectionality between politics, social issues and sports. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I think they went through um, a period of time where they just didn't have the stomach for the fight. Mm -hmm. And especially when it came to me and, and our show that when you had all these right-wing publications, media outlets writing about us all the time. You know, whenever we discussed anything that was, you know, remotely close to race or, you know, anything that came up within the, you know, the realm of sports, they just didn't want any part of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, their relationship with the NFL was a little tenuous. And so I think they kind of took a cowardly way out for a little while and so when they hired you know our friend Angela Rye and they seemed to be ready to re-engage in those conversations particularly after George Floyd I was I was mostly happy for my former colleagues because I know that a lot of them had a lot of things they wanted to say and didn't feel the comfort or safety to say them and um, seeing the company kind of reverse course a little bit I think was helpful for them so that they could join the dialogue. Mm. Now, before you get up out of here, we got to ask a couple of sports questions, if you don't mind. <laughs> oh, real quick, one more thing about the book then. Chapter mm-hmm. 5, you pay homage to Judy Bloom with that title. Are you there, guys? <laughs> it's me, Judy. You got it, see? Absolutely. You know, I, man, I, Beverly Clearly and Judy Bloom. Judy Bloom got me through. Man. Y'all don't know. Deanie, 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 oh, Deanie. Deanie. I lo- has, that's how I learned about love Deanie, right? You know, but shoot, the way people are acting about this book, man, and Judy Bloom might be banned right now. I have no idea. <laughs> like, she might are be, you there? Yeah. God, God is me. Margaret might not be a thing yeah. <laughs> anymore. You know? I always feel like young adult novels are so important, too. Yeah, no. Because you know, I think about all the things. I even used to read them Sweet Valley High books. I used to read Sweet Valley High, too. <laughs> choose Your Own Adventure. Like, oh, I, I love like, Choose oh, Your Own Adventure. It's a love choose your own adventure. Like those are that, see, that, that. You remember when Netflix did that Black Mirror episode? Where it was choose your own adventure. Y'all I have it? never seen Black Mirror. Really? No. They got a choose your own adventure Black Mirror. No way. Yes, where oh. it's interactive. Like oh. that shit is great. <laughs> All right, I gotta peep that. Now my sports question. Oh God. Draymond Green, Jordan Poole. Draymond Green's punches him in the face. Can Jordan Poole stay there and, and play comfortably there? Uh, well, and I I think this is this was evident before this. Um, incident just because the state uh, that the that you know go to state is in in terms of their finances i mean that's a hell of a check they're gonna have to write in luxury taxes alone if they decide to to resign um draymond give him a new deal rather and so i think it was probably trending toward him not being there anyway mm. and you know i know draymond um good dude i know people have polarizing opinions about him that was a bad moment obviously mm. now the only thing i Debated with people who called it a sucker punch. No, I don't not know. No damn sucker that punch. was not a sucker punch, no. right? Like it's just you, you, there's an aggressive moment that's happening, and I know that's your teammate. And people are like, oh, but he, you know, he should have recognized that's his teammate, and he wasn't expecting a punch. Uh, have you seen family members fight? Mm-hmm. Y- yes, oh, mm-hmm. I certainly have. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I just think that was a really bad moment for him. I think he recognizes that. I think he is honestly remorseful, but I don't see them coexisting. Jordan Poole should have ducked because here's the thing. <laughs> if you push somebody that right. hard, you got to expect something, something in return. Something is coming back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, this is, this is not Jordan Poole's fault at, no. a, at all, but I think because of the finances, he won't 
be there. Ben they're repeating this year, though. They are repeating this yeah, year. I yeah, I, I, you know, I was on the fence at first because I was like, uh, oh, no, I don't know repeating. because this might be one of those. Yeah. Oh, no, because of this incident. Because oh. this might want to be one of those things that, like, early in the season, there's certainly, you know, some momentum that you have now. But the season drags on. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know how they respond and are, are able to play when you have that big of a issue that's kind of right there. But... These guys are veterans. I think they're hungry. I think they kind of know it's their last stand. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I do. I expect them to repeat as well. Ben Simmons, Russell Westbrook. What's the question? <laughs> ben Simmons. What, I what mean, do you think Ben Simmons. I mean, was it a good who's better? Is that, that what we do? You, you know, it's a messy, messy image. Image. <laughs> What's the one word that comes to your mind when you think Ben Simmons, Russell Westbrook? Miss. But you know, honestly. I, I feel really bad for Russell Westbrook because, you know, especially... She just couldn't jump over Ben Simmons' baguette. No, no, no. I mean, Ben Simmons, I, I think he's not as bad as people think, you know, and, and what you hate to see is when you look at an athlete and you could tell psychologically something's going on. Yes. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, it feels like criticizing him. And this, this is not to say that he doesn't deserve you know, some criticism, but it, it just feels like he's mentally worn out. That's what he seems like to me. Russell Westbrook is the same thing. Really? Is that, because Russell is is clearly frustrated. I don't, Russell doesn't want to play this shitty. <laughs> like, he doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. But now, and, and this is the gift and curse of playing with LeBron. It's never going to be LeBron's fault. I'm not saying it is, but the people that play around LeBron, remember how the people used to be on Chris Bosh all mm-hmm. the time. Like, it's always somebody that when they play with him, that becomes the target for all the frustration over, you know, losing over all of this. And it's Russell Westbrook. They have made him the villain of the team. And I'm not talking about the organization itself, but fans, you know, and he's clearly struggling. Um, I kind of agree with what Charles Barkley said. I I don't really see the joy in his game like I used to. Like, he's certainly still a great athlete, but you'd be crazy not to think it's not mentally wearing on him that he's not thinking about this every time he takes a shot. The fact that the fans are booing him. It reminds me of when Josh Smith played in Atlanta, and every time he took mm-hmm. a three-pointer, the crowd would be like, no! It's like, <laughs> I feel like I hear that every time Russell <laughs> like takes a shot. Like, people are mad, yeah. right? And so to play like that in your hometown, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's the vibe? You can't tell me that that mentally that wouldn't break you a little bit. That's interesting, because I feel like Ben is mental and Russ is just physical. Like, Russ... Russ still got that energy and oh, that yeah. confidence. I just don't know if he's physically able to play the way he used to. I mean, I, I sense the, I sense certainly the energy. I don't mean to make it sound like he's mellowed it in or like that, but it, it's like a joy that comes to playing with basketball, mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel like he's playing with a lot of joy. Mm. That's, all, that's, that's all. all. No cowboy questions. I thought I was going to get some. We're going to, we're going to the Super Bowl. I don't need you, <laughs> don't need you to tell me that we're going to the Super Bowl. Let's go there. What do you think about my, my New York Giants? I think the Giants look good. You know, I mean, I, I'm sure Daniel Jones is thinking about how he got slandered when, <laughs> when they made that pick. And the now, last couple of years he got slandered. Definitely last couple of years, but they didn't have as good of a team, I think, as they have now. Love Brian Dayball. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, definitely one of those coaches I've been watching for a while. And so he, fe- coach. he felt like he would be a good fit for this team. So, look, New York football, Jets and Giants. You know, Robert Salah, like he was a, I'm a 49ers fan. He was. How did that happen, by the way? <laughs> I always wonder about that. How did Jamel Hill end up a 49ers fan? Well, as you. Was she going to be a Lions fan? Yeah. I'm, listen, <laughs> I value my mental health. Isn't that what. <laughs> That's what you talk about, Char, all the time, right? It's like <laughs> mental health is wealth. 
for my mental health, I was never a Lions fan. And it's crazy because my husband's a huge Lions fan. He was at the Cowboys game, by yeah, the way. He busted their ass on Sunday. <laughs> busted their ass, Wood. <laughs> and, uh, no, I mean, so my mother, as y'all know from reading the book, you know, she spent some time in, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's where I was, I think, conceived. <laughs> okay. And so because of that, she liked the 49ers. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she would root for the Lions and for the 49ers. She really liked Joe Montana. That was like one of her favorite players. And so I just, you know, they were winning. You, you know? went with that team. I went with, why would you not go with the winning team, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, <laughs> well, Greta, you grew up in South Carolina, so y'all didn't have your own NFL team. Mm-hmm. And a lot of a lot of black fans that were not in um, NFL cities were Cowboys fans, even That's some right. that were. Like in, in D.C., you know, it's, it's kind of a, a not so quiet secret there's a lot of Cowboys fans in DC mm-hmm. right and so at any rate so I just became a 49ers fan I've been with him um, you know ever since but Robert Salah was like a great coach for us so I, I when he was going through that last year with the Jets I was like this dude about to show he about to show them because he's got the he gets players to buy in certainly um, from a schematic standpoint like he's a really good coach what about the Cowgirls I mean <laughs> Cowboys what are, what are your thoughts on them Offense still looking a little rough, Shar. We do. Look a little rough, but yeah. that defense, it's a championship-level defense. Yeah. And uh, this was the kind of defense I, I wish Tony Romo would have had. You know, that's uh, that that's no in no way a, a, a shot at Dak Prescott. But people like to, as you know, um, they like to hate on Tony Romo. Mm-hmm. But they forget that he had categorically some of the worst defenses in NFL history. And I was like, damn, if they'd have had this defense with him, You're y'all right. might have won, right. won a couple. But they didn't. The Giants <laughs> got the second-best record in the league. You know who beat them? Oh, here we go. Did, I'm a, y'all go through this no, <laughs> I'm I'm sure saying, on, a daily, know, on a daily basis. I just basis. want to make sure you know who beat the Giants, right? The third best team? <laughs> just, let, just letting you know. Just letting you know. But I, I like the Cowboys, but you know I ain't picking them over the 49ers. I don't know. Right? But you know we're going to the Super Bowl this year, though. Because <laughs> defense no. wins championships. We know. Yeah. <laughs> like, we know that in San Francisco. <laughs> That's why we had to come to Dallas last year and give y'all a piece. That is very okay? true. Right. <laughs> that is very true. Well, we appreciate you for joining us. Go get uphills yes. out right now. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all. Oh, and bro- I just want to say one last thing about mm-hmm. Jamil Hill. When I announced my show, she called me in the middle of the night from Portugal. You were in Portugal, right? No, I wasn't what? in Portugal, but I was I was uh, somewhere. somewhere out of the country. Was yeah. I in France? Maybe I was in South of France hanging with this dude. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> well, might have been there. Oh, that's what you said. I yeah, yeah. Was that before no, 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 no. that? I don't remember. You were here when she announced it. Oh, yeah, you were here? Okay, oh, yeah, so I maybe here. I was, but, but I was gone. But you see, you were gone. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, I went on the night and she was like, I just want to say congratulations. I was like, that is so nice. Yeah, no, Angela. I did that. I appreciate it. I'm really proud of you for doing your thing. And as I wrote in the note to you in the in the book is that you um you know the agency you betting on yourself like that's very not just admirable but it's very inspiring for somebody like me who throughout this this season of my career that's what I've done is like bet on myself so I love seeing other women do um you know the same thing well, Jamel, thank can you, you tell you Listen, y'all get off my girl <laughs> let me tell you something I was late they was envy was stressed because he had to do my job <laughs> Because she was late this morning. She, and this uh, is what they do. But All you right, want go. me to leave? Right here, go. I didn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank right. you, Go guys. get up, Hill. Jamel Hill. Her memoir is out right now. That's right. I'm trying to be a bestseller, y'all. There we go. The Breakfast Club. <laughs> good morning. It. Oh, my. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, 
the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner. The rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free at 